the the questions I had were pretty straightforward. Um, kind of gotcha. focused on Tuesday night. Um, but uh, if there's anything you want to add or um, digress about, please feel free. Great. Um, you know, like the reason why I was there, right, is that uh, folks made public that there were nine store employees and only three people documenting them not doing anything harassing and then the police are getting called and so in that situation um i am very keen to understand how the police respond tactically but like specifically for me and my like research interest and stuff like what weaponry do they bring? Like they're coming to a set of uh, set of food that could be completely destroyed by a number of chemical agents, um, including things that they use on protesters, but other things, right? Like they could just bleach it, right? Like that's a thing that you know a lot of grocery stores do to prevent people from eating things, right? Which is just horrendous. Is they intentionally spoil food, um, and we know that police in Portland intentionally target. Uh, medic stations, snack stations, etc., at protests and protest spaces. And so I was very concerned about what the response was going to be by the police. Um, and given, you know, like this is, this is a volunteer position for me, right? Like I, all of the work that I'm doing, like on the chemical, you know, weapons research stuff is all like funded through my company out of my own pocket, basically. And so like, I've got, you know, a lot of other work stuff going on, but I also needed to go to the dog park and that grocery store, I've gone to it a couple of times because it's right near the dog park that we go to. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, all right, well, we're going to go to the dog park, but I'm going to stop by on the way and I'll bring my credentials and my camera and see what has happened um, and who has uh, responded and what, what weaponry they've brought. Um, and that's really what got me there. Okay. And just to uh, clarify for our listeners, this is the Hollywood West, uh, Fred Myers. So the one you turn off Broadway on 28th or yeah, that's the one. It's that, yeah. It's like nestled right next to the, uh, right next to the interstate. And so there's that yeah. like weird, and um, also, you know, like one of the things that I think is really important for folks to realize is like on top of the fact that 82% of Portland police officers don't live in the city and we're coming here to like make fun of people trying to get food when they were hungry in the city, like there was power outages in that neighborhood. People were losing their food out of their refrigerators. And while we were there, there were line crews working into the night to repair lines because of how the power outages were like all of these down lines, right? Yeah. There was a, uh, like 28th was blocked off because they were fixing lines that were downed on 28th, right? And so there, it was even more of a weird, like how do you actually get there, right? So like the, the space where um, the garden center is, which is sort of outside of where this happened, is kind of tucked away in the back mm -hmm. and you can't actually drive a full circle around the store. Um, and so like, given that 28th was closed and that the garden center is kind of in the back um, that space when i arrived there were very few cars parked anywhere over there um, 
I parked like kind of on the edge of that part of the parking lot. Um, and uh, the vast majority of the cars were towards the other, you know, two sides of the store that you could access, like the front entrance. So this was kind of like at a back entrance. And the si- one, of the, one of the few ways to get to the back entrance was closed off, right? Okay. So it was, you had to, like, the police had to go to an effort to get there, right? Like it's, um, and anybody that wanted, that needed food had to go to an effort to get there. Yeah. Um, but then, like, literally, it's people in the neighborhood, right, who were like, my fridge just, like, went out and I had to throw out everything because it actually spoiled. And I'm walking to the grocery store right now and I see them throwing away unspoiled food and they want me to go inside and buy new food. Yeah. Um, and I had conversations with people like that. Like I didn't, you know, um, I don't really fashion myself a journalist. I'm a member of the press, but I'm a scientist. It's this weird sort of line. Like my, my goal at being there wasn't to do like journalism work. So I wasn't like interviewing people or whatever. I was really just taking pictures and documenting, right? Like I wanted to see, had they spoiled the food? What was yeah. the condition of the food? And like just that kind of stuff. But it ended up being that like all of this stuff happened before really any other photographers came. Like Team Raccoon had been streaming it, but then their phone battery died and their power was out and they live in the neighborhood um, or in the sort of general area. And so like they're one of those people who like would have loved to have some food that was getting thrown away. Right. And they were documenting this on their camera. That's why they were there. Um, And then, you know, obviously you can only stream video for so long, yeah. uh, especially when you're, you know, you're running low on power at home or don't have any. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like they were videoing and filming, but then nobody was taking pictures of anything. Um, and so like one of the key things that I know is that these officers that go out, uh, at night in particular to harass and brutalize racial justice protesters, people standing up for black rights, uh, people standing up for indigenous rights, et cetera, people standing up so that, you know, there are no more kids in cages, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that we actually hold the Biden administration accountable to what they said and not what they're doing now. Um, those cops that go out there every night to brutalize folks sometimes also have day shifts. And when they're in day shifts, they their face is more visible. They're wearing less, less um, anonymizing gear their numbers and names are more visible, right? And so like being at these kinds of things where like, um, whether it's like a right wing, you know, sort of thing where the cops go up, show up and sort of like protect, right? Like there's certain situations where the same kind of officers that are out at night are also out at day and you get a lot better of a picture of who they are so that you can piece these things together because they obfuscate their identities so that it's easier for them to brutalize individuals and then go home and sleep at night, right? Um, and so I, like when I showed up, I wasn't even looking at the dumpsters, right? Like I wasn't looking at the cops. I was trying to to figure out which cops these were, who was in charge, why were there were so many and what weapons they had. Right. And so like, I started asking them like for their cards, who to contact for their names, for their numbers. I was just told contact the PIO. And I was like, who's in charge here? And they weren't going to tell me, um, and then I was like, I went to this one officer, I was like, who, who was telling me to just go to the PIO 
I wanted to know who that officer was so I could tell the PIO that that officer told me to contact them, right? Like, yeah. you know, following up with basic protocol. Um, but that officer um, tried to hide his name and number and told me that he did not have to provide that information to me when it is a pretty well established and reiterated recently fact that in reality, they have to identify themselves to any member of the public, but especially to a member of the press who's trying to document what they're doing, right? Like there's a, they have to, they have to be open about who they are. But if you're asked by somebody who's trying to document that for the public good, like that just, you, you saying that you don't want to be identified when it's been recently, or not only that you don't want to be identified, but lying about the legal structures around that is part and parcel for what PPB does, right? Like even when there are regulations against them doing something, they still do it and tell you yeah. to contact the PIO. And then the PIO tells you to contact the city attorney. I've had experiences with this brand new, right? Like I'm a scientist, I'm not a journalist. So this whole thing, like I just did my first PRR, like just got in contact with the PIO, like just figuring this stuff out. But like you get shunted from officer to PIO to city attorney to we're not going to talk about it for any question yeah. that is not supportive of them, right? And so they didn't like me doing that. Um, I didn't care that they didn't like me doing that and continued to do it. Again, I know it's private property, but like I'm just interacting with the police. I'm not talking to any Fred Meyer employees. I'm not looking at the dumpster. I'm not doing anything destructive or whatever, right? And so the police know because of that, that they literally have no authority over me. And so they go and get a store manager from like 50 feet plus away to come over and tell me without any interaction that I'm trespassing, right? Like, so he came over and told me, like, didn't ask me what I was doing, whatever. Like, as he was getting there, the words coming out of her mouth, uh, his mouth were, you're trespassing, leave or you'll be arrested. Right. And then that gave the cops the authority to actually enforce that. Um, and so, like, I didn't want to get arrested for that. And I know it's private property and legally they could have. And so I moved my car across the street, uh, stood with the rest of the people that had, you know, the you know, seven or eight other people that had been um, told they were trespassing. Um, and within, you know, like the, the amount of time that it took me to park my car and walk back over, the cops were leaving. Um... So, like, they didn't even... They, like, they were upset about me being there, documenting them, to the point that they had to go get somebody to kick me off the property and then left. Right? Like, so, I mean, it, again, this is all just part and parcel for how they respond to private property. Right? They don't care about humans. They don't care about people. They care that a private company called them to guard property because the private company told them that they were feeling threatened when in reality the private company's employees were threatening people documenting them trying to prevent people who are hungry from eating perfectly fine food and then they needed the property holder to tell them yeah. to get rid of you <laughs> yeah uh, um, and so it, like it was it was getting to that point of absurdity right like and i was concerned really right like when given given the escalation and the incapacity of PPP to actually de-escalate any situation, like I was concerned at that point that they might escalate further, and I am so glad that whoever decided to pull the plug pulled the plug 
and those 12 uniformed officers, I counted 12 uniformed officers from PPV, they said that there were 11 officers and only eight of them were uniformed. That's not what I counted. Um, so if they want to dispute that, um, like I would love to know who the officers were. Um, and we're also, I know folks are getting um, call logs and all that. So we'll get this information together. Yeah. Um, but I know that I saw 12 uniformed PPV officers. Um, and about and a smattering and a smattering of ununiformed people that I couldn't tell if they were, you know, plainclothes cops or trainees or store employees. Um, so like they like somebody decided to pull the plug and they pretty much all left together, but in seven separate cars. Um, and on the way out, um, one of them, Officer Green, uh, flashed the uh, OK white power sign multiple times to the sight of multiple individuals. Uh, Which officer was this? Uh, Green. Green. Officer Green. Yeah. Um, and then I can't forget, I can't remember what the other guy's name is, but the guy without a mask on throughout the whole thing is also a known officer. Um, he's wearing a thin blue line or Blue Lives Matter Hawaii flag. Um, and he's like recently got a DUI. I don't know the whole story about him, but I know that there was a huge problem with him before him even being there. And then he was asked by multiple people there to wear a mask and refused. Right. And so you have, again, a, a public employee who is not abiding by the like stated federal, state, local mandates about this. <laughs> um, and there's no recourse. There's no recourse on the ground from a supervisor. You know, if you wanted to, t you know, talk to somebody, they would tell you to contact the PIO and you get spit up the line, right? Like, so there's there's actually no accountability for anything happening on the ground, whether it's guarding food or wearing a mask. And about how many people do you think were uh, actually there trying to get food out of the dumpsters? So, um while the police were there, and so I, I showed up like right around five o'clock, um, which was when like the height of the police were there, and there were that many. Um, I counted fewer than ten people watching. It was a little bit hard to tell because the police were making such a spectacle out of their presence that uh, folks were getting radicalized on the way to and from the grocery store. Right, like, so folks who were just going to get food because it was a good time to go get food were like, what's going on here? And somebody would tell them and they'd be like, what? That's ridiculous. And they'd stand there for a few minutes and watch for themselves. They might say something. They might just get, like, visibly upset and uh, radicalized by it and move on. But, like, I know that was happening. So it was a fluid, but, like, definitely not more than a dozen at any one time during that point. And Team Raccoon told me that, you know, at the point that they were there when the cops actually got called and which was like a little bit before I got there, um, at max that they ever saw was like a dozen or 15 people like total. Um, and that was like, not in, the, that was in the point where the, the police were already talking about it being 50. Right. Wow. And like the numbers, the number games that the police play, I mean, like the, the, we all know that the, the quote unquote news releases that Portland police put out are propaganda. They're factually inaccurate. I wish I had time and capacity 
but this is a great research project for anybody who's interested in doing um, machine learning, AI, or, you know, if you use old terms, regression, right? Um, and online learning, right? Um, Bayesian adaptive modeling, because you can't go into every news release as if it's a blank slate, right? Like yeah. the history of them tells you that the factual inaccuracies uh, are so high that it's really like a, you know, it's generous to say that 30% of the thing, the, the facts that they say are true, right? Like, or will be true. Like it's usually about a 50, 50 split. Um, and sometimes it's not even that much, right? Like they exaggerate numbers. They exaggerate all these things. Um, and the, the max that I ever saw there was maybe two dozen. But again, that was as people were coming and going and coming and going, filling up trucks and vans to go take food to the free fridges around town and shelters and other, you know, distribute them out on the street, right? Like, so that was, it wasn't like there were 25 people like banging on the door or like yelling. And that was like 25 people because that's about how many people could fit in that space between those dumpsters and get the food out. Right. Um, and never did I see it cross 30, nowhere near 50. Um, it's, and it's those exaggerations that they pepper in there that they say as if they're fact, but there's no reality to them. There's no documentation to support it. There's no, you know, witness that says it was this many, like there's no, we counted this many. There's no photo. There's no anything. There's no documentation. We're just expected to take their word for it. Um, and that's where it's really hilarious how Portland police has responded to being called out in national and international media by replying for the first time in over two months to other accounts. They never reply to other accounts. Yeah. Um, and it's never in this kind of way. They've done it like at least six times this week, um, basically replying to news sources that say that they were called to guard the dumpsters. And they're like, we weren't called to guard the dumpsters. And then everybody's replying and being like, yes, you were. Here are all the photos. And they don't realize that other people are documenting them, right? Like, and that's, that's the thing. Like, I, I was doing that with my camera, but other people were doing that too. Like, you know, Team Raccoon was doing that. Like, we are documenting them. And they don't quite put two and two together that we actually can show that their facts are incorrect by the documentation that we're doing. And when it's so blatant as like, we weren't called to guard this. It's like, yes, you were. And we have photos of you standing guarding it. Like they, they were in a soft line, right? Like it was a soft car line. Mm -hmm. That's the only way I can describe it. Like they were so far in front of the dumpsters that if this had been a store where you could drive all the way around, somebody could have drove around behind them, pilfered food while they were watching because they had put a line only looking outward towards the, 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 you know, the crowd. Um, and that, again, it was like a soft line cause they were slouching and loafing and like, not really like paying attention, but they had cars in there to support it. Right. And that was, that's a line that's used to put separation between these people, which is in effect guarding, right? Like, so however you want to spin it, like maybe the person who called didn't use the word guard, but that doesn't mean that you weren't called to guard it. Yeah. You, were. Um, you were called to act as private security for trash um, that other people could actually eat and survive off of. 
And so, like, the their response to that is indicative of the reality, right? Like, they assume that news outlets will parrot what they say. Um, when the Oregonian basically broke the story on, like, news outlets, they broke it before the police had a chance to say anything about it. And so that put the police on their heels trying to respond to it. And that put them in such a bad situation, right, um, from their perspective, because now they're trying to play catch up on PR instead of being out in front of it. Yeah. And that's they don't know how to handle that situation. And so they, like, reply hilariously. Um, but what that indicates, though, is, right, like, they don't know how to handle that situation. They don't know how to handle it when facts actually get out in front of their falsehoods. Um, and that's something that this really set in with me and I think with other people, because again, like they don't do this kind of replying. Mm -hmm. I went and looked back and it was literally sometime in like November or something like that. The last time they actually replied to an account that wasn't their own. So <laughs> mm. their, their, their PR machine is ingrained, but failing. Yeah. Cause they usually entrenched, get entrenched, but failing, I think is the way to yeah, yeah, the, works too. the yeah. Oregonian I usually see it's like word for word copied with the tenses changed. Exactly, um, and, and like I, you know, at some level I understand like taking the information from the police, but I don't understand taking that information and assuming that it's true because again, like this whole this whole thing that I was talking about before, like we know that it's not; it's demonstrably false like these statements that they make. And so like, we should know going in that there's a high likelihood that it's false and we need to fact check it. And that's the problem is like, they don't, there's not enough, you know, newspapers are strapped, blah, blah, blah. But obviously corporations are making a whole bunch of money, right? So it's the corporate decision to not have there be positions that fact check things, right? And so basically the way to short circuit that is because there isn't, it's the who gets out the story first thing. Um, and like, if the facts get out first, the police are forced to try and overcome reality. But if the police get their lies out first and the media aren't able to or don't fact check it, then their statements are taken to be true and it sets a giant narrative and I can't think of a better example of that than um, the fire at the North Precinct in June, right? Like that was a hugely radicalizing moment for me. Like I'm, I've been an anti-fascist, anti-policing person for as long as I can remember. I love my parents. Thank you for bringing me up well. Um, but like, you know, the way that I expressed that would come out in different different ways, right? Like the, my my mm -hmm. devotion, my ability or desire to put extra volunteer time and energy or work focus on it or whatever, like that is what switched really hard at that point because I was there um, as a person providing snacks and resources and doing some supply runs. And I saw, you know, as happens at protests, some random people set some fires and I saw somebody set a fire that was too close to a building. And I saw people trying to put the fire out and police officers literally shooting them with impact munitions and chemical weapons to get them away 
so that there would be enough of a burn on the plywood so that they could have a press conference in front of it the next day with that narrative. And the reality is, even at that point, you know, folks on the ground were getting that story out, right? But it wasn't, yeah. for whatever reason, it wasn't cracking through to the, the, like the media stories, right? And I think that's what's really different here is that the Oregonian knew what happened before they read the police news, right? And I think that's what we need to figure out how to do as much as possible. Because there are, there are so many people who are actual journalists doing really good work on the ground, documenting this kind of stuff night after night. Like the, the, the fire in the North Precinct, like I was there for some of that and I saw some of that later. Uh, like I followed up later because I was doing supply runs and I wasn't staying there watching. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and so like there were people documenting it. It was all over Twitter. It was like videoed and photoed and blah, 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 blah. But it didn't, it didn't crack through. Um, and I don't know how we cracked that through, but I think that's the difference that happened here, that um, the Oregonian understood the situation on the ground before they heard from the police. And maybe that's because the police left and didn't have people on the ground when they showed up uh, to talk to, and so they didn't, they weren't spun the story of the police officers on the ground. Maybe it's because the PIO didn't think they needed to write a news release about this until they got bad press on it. I, like, I don't know what the situation was that facilitated that. Um, but I think it was really like, I'm still flabbergasted by it. Right. Like I, from my perspective, I know the Oregonian to do what you said they do, right. To like relatively parrot what the police reports say with tense changes. Right. Um, and for them to not do that, was eye-opening um in the same way that you know seeing the facebook comment section on some of the stuff that went like you know national or international or whatever that was like i would expect facebook comments and i have seen facebook comments on stuff like this before to be just like back the blue all that kind of stuff like antifa is horrible you know like all of those sort of right-wing talking points and that was there, but the, the proportion of that was so much smaller. So many people around the country, certainly around the world, but around the country that aren't used to experiencing food insecurity just felt it really hard. Yeah. And then they just saw the police state preventing people in their situation from getting free food, right? Like, so the, the, um, the empathy there, the empathy link there is huge. And I think, you know, it's through empathy that we can radicalize a lot of people that we think we might have to do a lot more work with, right? But it's like all this stuff that people talk about with like de-radicalizing people from right-wing stuff, right? Like, um, and how important personal connections are. It's that like that connection of like, I can see myself in your situation. I can understand what's happening here and why the police are bad in this situation. And that's just the crack of the veneer that somebody needs for the next time they see the police doing something, they think about what they're doing and if that makes sense for them to be doing, as opposed to assuming that that's okay with that they're doing, right? Like, and so I wanna know and I wanna support my journalist friends in doing it, like how we, how we do that situation more often, um, how we short circuit the police PR machine. Because once we do that, we'll be able to show people around the country and the world more directly how impactful in a negative way Portland policing has been 
for its legacy and continues to be. And I think that's a really interesting take on this, uh, or takeaway from this situation that uh, idea of getting out ahead of the police in terms of getting information out and uh, images and um, numbers. Uh, and you, you had mentioned you heard about this from uh, mutual aid groups that had posted. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I um, originally heard about it because uh, I work with uh, Team Raccoon. Uh, they do park cleanups and filter exchanges for anybody, but in particular focused on like getting filters and gas masks for children that are getting gas in their homes because they happen to live next to where police decide that protests shouldn't happen. Um, and we have teamed up together on a number of different projects. We're actively working right now um, to help study the impact of DHS chemical weapons on an elementary school. Like we have a GoFundMe for that, that we're like using to fund the chemical analyses, which are hella expensive and which I went out of pocket for on my company before for all the HC stuff and whatnot, like, like I sunk, you know, thousands of dollars, that's totally fine. I just don't have that much more money to do all these chemical analyses and we needed to get them done. And so like, just like with the filter exchange, it's, it's this great community support to get, you know, everybody is donating a little bit so that we can get all of these analyses done and figure out how much stuff DHS has dropped on the school directly or indirectly. Um, and so we're working together pretty actively and we have for a while. And they were on the ground because they live in the area, um, and I don't know if they if they originally heard from it, heard about it from a mutual aid connection, or they just happened to be going to the grocery store and saw this. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I don't know if I've been told exactly what happened, like that initially brought them over there. Yeah. But they were there with two other people, so there were three people there, and um, I've seen the video that Team Raccoon posted since the police put out their press release that shows how the store employees actually interacted with them um, and how like the, the folks documenting were like 20 feet away and like asking them how, you know, they weren't harassing them or threatening assault. They were asking how these folks could live with themselves and sleep at night when they were guarding food from folks who were hungry and needed it. Right. And so it was, it was that kind of a, you know, a jabbing at somebody verbally, not a, not a, you know, not a threat of violence or anything like that. And again, from about 20 feet away, and then uh, multiple, multiple rounds of store employees close that gap and then dissipate, right? Like, so two, two walk up or three walk up, right? And are close, like close the distance to basically like five feet. Um, and then, you know, another two walk up and two of the first three go away, right? Like it's sort of this like multiple yeah. sets of the nine employees. It wasn't just like they all came up and it wasn't just like one or two of them came up. They kind of took turns coming up um, and trying to confront them. Um, all Every single time it was the employees closing that gap, right? Um, and so um, given that situation and that they decided that they were going to call the police, uh, Team Raccoon decided to that was when they switched over to um, from like just videoing for documentation purposes to live streaming it on Instagram and tweeted about that, right? Because at that point they were just filming it internally for themselves. Uh, but then once they were threatened with the police being called, they went live and posted that they were going live on Twitter 
And then I reached out and then was like, okay, I'm going to stop by on the way to the dog park. Um, and apparently spend two hours um, <laughs> there or whatever it was, right? Like, it's like, okay, we're going to stop by. I'm going to take some pictures of this place and go away. But then every, everything changed um, as it often does when I think I'm just going to stop by and document something, whether it's the police standing there or chemical weapons on the ground. Like, there's always more work to do. Um, and like what actually held me around longer there was I was like, okay, the police finally left. I've documented what I can here now. Um, I'm curious to see what's going to happen, right? And like a couple folks went over and like checked things out and like grabbed something. It was a bottle of strawberry lemonade. I initially called it juice. I don't know if it's technically FDA juice, um, but it was strawberry lemonade and it was going to go bad in March, right? Like it's fine outside for you know yeah, two, yeah. Days at, two days at 40 degrees right like yeah it yeah. never got above refrigeration temperature outside like let's be real about that and the stuff was like packed in right so like the the built-in cold and then this yeah anyway so like they got stuff and came back and then once that happened and i don't think they had been told not to trespass i think they were new right and so that person had gone over and so they hadn't been warned or threatened and then once they were able to come back without again being warned or threatened or whatever everybody that had been like we all were like oh, okay we have strength in numbers now we can go back because now there were because like they brought nine store employees out for three people and now there were like 12 of us or whatever mm -hmm. right so it wasn't like we had 50 but there were more of us than there were of the store employees there and there weren't police in sight anymore so at least like in the immediate term like let's go over there and see what's there and at that point i was like okay i'm gonna take some pictures and leave like that was sort of what I was like, I'm just, this is going to be interesting. I want to see what's in there. I'm going to take some pictures and leave. And then I actually saw what was in there. And then I was like, I need to document this some more because there's nobody here with the fancy camera taking like that kind of pictures, right? Yeah. Like people are taking like pictures of the stuff that they found there. Like, that's like ridiculous. Come get some, like all of those kinds of things, but not taking like, not trying to set a, a photo or whatever, right? Like, which I am also not that great at, but like, I know like people are digging around in there for food. Like I'm food secure right now. I didn't take any food from this at all. Like I wanted that to go to people who needed it. And I was like, I don't want to get in the way doing that. There are people who do distribution much better than I do that have that system set up. I'm here with a nice camera. I'm going to take some pictures of the ridiculous food waste, right? Um, and so that's where it was like, okay, I ended up saying, staying longer and then ended up coming back after we went to the dog park to see where how things had gone along um and so like like i said i didn't think i was going to be there for very long but like peering over the green dumpster first it was like a third full it was a lot of cheese and yogurt and it was all of the like prepackaged fresh food, right? Like the soups yeah. in a quart container, right? Like all the stuff that like you could literally drop off anywhere, right? Like this, it was warm, right? Like coming out, right? Like you could have, you could have handed that out warm to people. You could have handed it out cold to people. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't matter, right? Like it was ready to go. It wasn't like prepackaged or pre, you know, packaged food. It was like pre-made food, right? Like, and that, like just seeing stuff like that, like that was just like, what the heck, right? Like, why are you throwing this away? Um, and it, like I said, it was about a third full. I could see that it was all food, right? Like that was one thing I was curious about. Was there just regular trash underneath there, right? Like I didn't know what was in the dumpsters because I was focused on the police. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, that looks like it's all food. 
And then I went over to the orange one and I stepped up on the side and I was just like, holy I think I said the phrase holy probably like six or seven times before I said any other words. Holy click, holy click, holy click, right? Like just the amount of food and the sheer audacity of the things that they threw away made it clear to me what they did, which was they cleared out every single refrigerated or frozen space, including things that were refrigerated that don't need to be refrigerated, but are only kept cold because people like to buy them cold, like iced tea and cold brew and like in cans and uh, the like hibiscus drinks and the like all all of those things that are in the, like the coffee mate tortillas, like the tortillas that they have that are right. Like, yeah, that don't go back veggie trays. Like, Bags of green beans, like the prepackaged bag, like what is this, right? Um, and that's what's on top. And again, this is the orange one, so I don't know if it's full or not. But I'm like, I'm hanging around taking pictures, and somebody has the bright idea of like, let's open the door so that we can actually get the stuff out. And thankfully, I snapped a video of that because it's just like seeing it spill out is obscene, mm-hmm. right? But like, that's what clicked in me then of like, okay, everything in this dumpster is food. Yeah. There's no trash bags. There's no, I mean, like maybe, maybe, maybe in the back corner, like a cubic foot or two, maybe was a trash bag. But like the vast majority, like everything that I saw that I was able to get my eyes on was good food thrown away. Was Nothing was spoiled when it was thrown away and really nothing was spoiled when it was out there. Um, things were getting close to spoiling, like the lobster tails, and the salmon, right? But like even that stuff, like a lot of that kind of meat that they threw away, just like boxes and boxes of like prime beef. Like even if you're like, oh, this is maybe bad. We shouldn't sell it to humans. Like you know how many hungry dogs there are. You know how many <laughs> folks that live on the street or in their car or you know like are food insecure themselves have food insecurities for their pets, right? Like there's so many supply chains that are set up to handle offloading this food, whether it's to food banks or any other, you know, any other sources or mutual aid organizations that reach out to you or show up. Um, And so like really Kroger slash Fred Meyer did not have to do anything. They actively defended this. They actively called the police. There was literally no reason. There's no legal reason for them to do it either because of the like good Samaritan aspects of federal law where like if you put food out and people take it, you know, John Oliver did a whole sec- you know, segment on it, like very well um, like researched and stuff. Um, and I don't remember the names of the laws offhand because this is not something I think about all the time, but I do know that the company is shielded from liability, yeah. right? Like, or, or if they weren't explicitly at that point that the few steps that they would have to have take, taken were so small, right? Like, and they instead decided to spend nine employees worth of money of time money guarding a thing that could have fed people mm-hmm. right like so they're intentionally making decisions that are costing them at the bottom line because they want to make a stand about something and supposedly protect the bottom line which is the other thing they think they're protecting the bottom line by forcing people to come into the store to buy the food that's still good because the food that's in the dumpster is still good and it's free, right? So like pure capitalism there, right? Like the reason why they were guarding it is because they knew that people going there was going to undercut their bottom line. And And so they were willing to spend the money 
to pay employees to guard it because they thought that would be less money lost than the money lost from hungry people taking food and instead to of be, buying it. To be clear, the store is open while all this is going on. Totally, yeah. And that's another thing, right? Like the, the police say in their statement that the power was out and the store was closed. No, that was open. Like I, I talked to one parent, like pushing a kid in a stroller, who was like, what's going on over there? Um, and I explained sort of like what was happening. And they were like, cool, I'm going to go inside and get some milk and then I'm going to come out and get some food. Because I think if I got food here first and then went inside, they'd be mad at me. Um, <laughs> so I don't see any milk out here. I want to buy milk fresh. I'm going to go inside and buy milk. And then I'm going to come out and get the food that I can't, you know, I don't have the capacity to spend money on otherwise, right? Like, or yeah. don't really need to want to spend money on otherwise because I need to spend it on something else. And it sounds, so it's, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like it was a mix of kind of individuals getting food for themselves and their families and um, distribution networks that were, um, is it, would you say it's about half and half from what you saw or? Yeah. And I think I there's, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Yeah, like, so true. like I was talking about, like the person that was there for Team Raccoon, like they are connected with mutual aid networks to get distribution stuff out. That's a thing that they do that they're connected with for the, you know, filter exchange, blah, blah, blah. And they were also there because their power was out and they would like some free food that was there. Right. So I, I like, there are definitely people that were in one camp or the other, but there were a lot of people who are like a lot of people who are doing mutual aid distribution work themselves are food insecure yeah. or not very far from being food insecure or have been pushed into being food insecure because of this pandemic and, all of those kinds of things, right? And that's a really hilarious point. So many people commented in various spaces about food spoilage and blah, blah, blah. So many of the folks working in the food distribution supply chain to get that stuff from the dumpsters out to people who could eat it have credentials and certifications for working in kitchens because they are chefs or cooks and they're laid off right now or mm -hmm. on like short time right now because of pandemic and they have a lot of time and interest in helping feed people and so that's where they've gone right like so we had literal professionals but they're not professionals because they weren't getting paid but you know what i mean like credentialed people who could do this in a professional setting doing that work um, and some of those people themselves were also like, Hey, I'm out of work right now. I could use some free food. That would be really great for me. Um, so I could spend money on covering the back rent that I owe or whatever it is. Right. Um, so definitely a mix of folks. Um, and I would say the, like the distribution was incredible and it's not just centered around this Fred Meyer, right? Like, I think the reason why this got focused is because of um, some of the some of the timing of things and like the documentation of it ha and happening in the afternoon, right? But like we know that food gets wasted at grocery stores around the country and uh, around North America um, and you know Europe at like alarmingly high rates um, and often is intentionally destroyed, like whether it's bleached or crushed or thrown in with spoiled food or whatever, um, and locked. And sometimes the cops are called. Oftentimes it's just security, but sometimes the cops crawl, right? Like, so that's, it's not an uncommon situation. It happens very often. And in particular around the power outage, it was happening all over Portland. Like the mutual yeah. aid network chats that I'm like, I'm a part of, like there are people that are like, oh, hey, the store that I go to is, is filling up dumpsters now. The store that I go to is filling up dumpsters now. They're all over the place, right? Like, and it's, 
you know, yes, it's Fred Myers, but there are also other places like, um, you know, the New Seasons or uh, the Trader Joe's and like Trader Joe's does actively like really great work with getting that kind of food out to people. But like even them, like they were like overwhelmed and put stuff out. Right. And so this wasn't not uncommon and it certainly wasn't un uncommon that day that it happened. Just the, the thing that made it like galvanizing was the degree to which it happened and the place in which it happened, right? Like you literally have 12 police officers showing up to a neighborhood grocery store to prevent people who are like without power at home, like a block away from getting food because they need to eat today. Those police officers on average, only two of them would actually be Portland residents. Yeah, And so, you know, hazarding a guess, neither one of those two lived in that neighborhood, right? Like, so you, it's, it's a galvanizing example of the occupying force that people have been talking about PPV being and PPA being in Portland because they come from outside places, take our taxpayer money to prevent mutual aid and to like harm people who want to try and help people. And, uh, so to just, I have just have a couple other questions. The um, mainly the the Kebu question, which is there, there's probably a lot of people listening who are infuriated by the fact that this happened um, and that um, that there were you know just barriers at all put up to people accessing this food that would have gone into a landfill. Um, and I understand if this isn't something you can answer necessarily, but what would you recommend that people could do to get involved if they are, are feeling that? And totally. Um, so, you know, whether you're here in Portland or anywhere really um, where this is a concern, a great thing that you can set up are these free, free pantries, these free fridges, outside spaces. They might be refrigerated that, you know, has power that's a big supply or is on a generator, or they might just be pantries. What I know of right now, there's a network of 11 of them in Portland. Um, and there's like a map and stuff and it's great. And I know that other cities have similar things, but really like this is what's needed, right? Like we need to take, if you wanna get involved, you need to help facilitate the movement of the food resources that are being wasted from the private space to the public space. It's radical redistribution of wealth through liberation of food, right? Like, and that's what needs to happen and so if you're feeling like hands-on that you need to do something, if your neighborhood doesn't have a, a fridge that's out and available for folks, like think about setting something up, like reach out to the folks who are good at doing that kind of work, partner with your neighborhood association or whatever you need to do to set up something that would allow you um, to put the food out for other people, right? Like, cause that's right. Like if, if you're in a situation where you want it, you're angry, but you're not food insecure, right? Like it's not that you were like, I needed to go get that food but like you want to help other people get that food, a really great way to do it is to model free food being available publicly on the take a penny, leave a penny kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you know, these fridges that are around the city are getting filled and emptied and filled and emptied and filled and emptied, especially right now. Um, and so they are a great way to get food from the private space to the public space. And until more systemic changes are actually made within companies, right? To 
to stop Kroger from doing things like this, which is like, you know, corporate changes and then translating down, like that takes a long time. And it's realistic that it can happen, but it's gonna take a long time without like significant external pressure, which maybe this this incident will help push along a little bit, but I can't imagine that's gonna like shut down their practices, right? And so what needs to happen is people need to be willing to go and retrieve food that is available and not being taken directly by folks who need it, but bring it to a space where folks who need it can get it, right? Like, so whether it's taking the, like the prepackaged, you know, pasta salad and fruit salad and olives or whatever, and like literally taking them to camps or uh, warming shelters or whatever and saying, here's food, right? Or setting up a space that you could bring stuff to and other people can come to. And that allows you also in the age of pandemic to not have to deal with that direct one-to-one -one interaction, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so you don't have to, or one-to-many interaction if you're going to like a camp or something, right? So like, if you're concerned about uh, like disease transmission, which is a very valid concern, a free fridge, free pantry kind of setup allows you that separation. So you can, you know, wear all the protection that you need, getting food and putting it into the things. And then people can wear the protection that they need, getting it out and taking it to eat. All right. Um, yeah. Well, Dr. Simonis, uh, thank you very much for talking with me today. This has I been really, a, really yeah. interesting to hear about. Um, You're yeah. very welcome. I really appreciate uh, you having me.